Well, today marks the beginning of Holy Week, the time in the church calendar where we reflect on the final events leading up through Jesus' passion, his death, and resurrection. And today is, of course, Palm Sunday, the event we just read about recorded in the Gospels, and the event that we just reenacted with palm branches and children's choir. This event, often referred to as the triumphal entry, and is recorded for us in all four of the Gospels. And this morning we'll be considering that Palm Sunday text in Matthew 21. I'd like for us to take a deeper look at the significance of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. What was Jesus up to? Why was he doing the things that he was doing? Why were people responding the way that they were? What did they infer from his actions? We're going to consider some of the Old Testament background, some of the historical background of this passage, and what it tells us about Jesus and his actions. We'll also consider the message of Palm Sunday for us, this side of the cross. Is Palm Sunday just a historical lesson? Why do we bother reenacting it? Are there implications and challenges for us in what Jesus reveals about himself through this event? So first, let's, let's set the stage by understanding where we are this, at this point in Matthew's gospel. We're told there in verse 1 of chapter 21 that they drew near to Jerusalem. Who exactly is with Jesus on this journey to Jerusalem? Remember, up to this point, Jesus has been going about different towns and villages, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, the coming kingdom, the kingdom that is at hand, calling on people to repent, to turn from their sins. He's been healing the lame, the blind, and the sick in Israel. In fact, we begin to get the picture as you read through the gospel that Israel herself has become sick, become blind, lame, and even demon-possessed. Her leaders are wicked shepherds who are leading her astray. Her teachers are blind men who do not know the scriptures. Jesus is over and over telling them again, have you never read Psalm 8? Uh, they're blind men reading the blind, leading the blind. And Israel is still ruled by pagan overlords. Uh, the kingdom has not been restored as it has been promised in places like the book of Daniel and others. So Jesus has been going about preaching repentance to Israel, teaching about God's kingdom ways. He's been rebuking these scribes and Pharisees, and he's been performing miracles. We know of miracles like the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And Matthew tells us as Jesus goes throughout Galilee and Judea, these large crowds are following him around. In fact, just a few verses before, as they were coming through Jericho on their way to the point uh, that they're at here in our, in our gospel lesson, he uh, healed two blind men who were calling out, save us, son of David. And it says, the text says in, in Matthew chapter 20 that they immediately followed him. So the, the folks that Jesus is going about healing are coming along, following Jesus around. John records for us the episode where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And we know there are a lot of people around that see this and that believe in him. And we're told that that happens in Bethany, which is just nearby Bethphage, where, where we just read about. Uh, and those folks have come along with him to the Mount of Olives. 
So the crowds that are here for the triumphal entry have been traveling with Jesus. They've been witnessing the many miracles that he's been doing. And no doubt their expectations of him were very high. Jesus is filling the hungry with good things. He's bringing good news to the poor that God is finally setting things right. He's announcing the kingdom of God is near. Maybe a question among the crowds is, is he about to bring down the mighty from their thrones? Now we're told they are drawing near to Jerusalem and the occasion of their journey was the feast of the Passover. Deuteronomy 16 tells us there are three festivals that all adult males would have been required to attend in Jerusalem at the temple, the feast of Passover, the feast of weeks, and the feast of booths. This is the feast of the Passover. The Passover required a sacrificial lamb to be offered at the temple for each household. And of course, the lamb would have been eaten by the household. So remember, the Passover is the feast to celebrate the anniversary of Israel's salvation from slavery in Egypt. It's the great redemptive event of the Old Testament. This is the defining moment for Israel when Yahweh rescued the people from Pharaoh, an oppressive pagan ruler, and brought them out to give them the promised land and to establish his house within their midst. So Jesus and the crowds are heading into Jerusalem for the Passover. As you can imagine, there would have been a lot of people there. So we mentioned the crowds that are following Jesus. Well, presumably these crowds would also be attending the Passover. So there's a lot of people there in Palestine, throughout all Palestine, making their way into Jerusalem for this week-long festival. Many scholars estimate the population of Jerusalem at this time to be around 30 to 40,000 people ordinarily, but during festival times, there could be 200,000 or more. So the city is just bustling with crowds exploding. Uh, Crowds are everywhere. The city's not obviously able to accommodate everyone. And so the limits of the city were extended to those hillsides and villages just outside of Jerusalem. Uh, And that's that one of those hillsides is Bethphage, which we read about in our, our passage here. This is why Uh, For example, you see throughout the Gospels, Jesus and his disciples going back and forth uh, to the Mount of Olives, to Bethphage, um, Gethsemane's right at the the bottom of the Mount of Olives. Uh, They're likely camping outside in these villages along with a lot of other people. So the Mount of Olives sits directly across from Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And it's close enough where you could see the Temple Mount if you're standing on the hillsides of the Mount of Olives. And in between those two is the Kidron Valley, uh, where Jesus would have likely walked on his entry up to Jerusalem. It's about a mile or two walk. So that gives you an idea of sort of the geography we're dealing with here. So the text tells us that they had reached the Mount of Olives. Jesus chooses this place as the starting point of his dramatic entrance into Jerusalem. Why this place? Why the Mount of Olives? Why not start off your dramatic triumphal entry at the gate of Jerusalem? Why Why here? Well, understanding the Mount of Olives is significant to understanding what Jesus was saying about himself. It also helps us understand the expectations of the crowds, why they're responding the way that they are, how they're interpreting what Jesus is doing. 
We have to remember that these are people who were steeped in the stories and in the prophecies of the Old Testament. To them, passages like Zechariah 9 and others are not vague references that they might have heard at some point or another. These ideas were part of their very identity as a people. So let's take a look at the Mount of Olives specifically. It's mentioned only twice by name in the Old Testament before this. The first time when King David flees to the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem, when his son Absalom conspires to take over the kingdom, David's forced to leave and Absalom's coming into Jerusalem and he goes up to the Mount of Olives. The second place it is mentioned is in the book of Zechariah, which Matthew, of course, quotes in our passage. Uh, this is actually Zechariah 14, so a few chapters after the one that we read. The Mount of Olives is identified as this coming place where Yahweh himself will one day stand. He will stand on the Mount of Olives in this future day of the Lord. He will come and uh, go out and fight against Israel's enemies. And that same chapter declares the Lord himself will be king over all the earth. The Mount of Olives is also referred to in a third place, but not explicitly by name. In Ezekiel's prophecy, the Lord pronounces judgment on Israel and the glory of Yahweh leaves the temple. The glory of Yahweh goes out of the city and we're told that it goes out of the gate facing east and stood, the glory of God stands on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. This would have been the Mount of Olives. And later in Ezekiel, when the glory of the Lord returns in this new and future uh, temple that is to come, when he returns to fill the temple, that's the route that he comes back through, is that Mount of Olives through the east into the east gate. So we have these three passages uh, referring to the Mount of Olives. In choosing the Mount of Olives as his location to stage this dramatic entrance into Jerusalem, Jesus is communicating a connection between himself and David, and he's communicating a connection at the same time between himself and Yahweh. We'll see further with other references in this passage that he is communicating that he is Yahweh standing on the Mount of Olives ready to do battle. He is the glory of Yahweh returning to the temple. So from there, once he's gotten to the Mount of Olives, he sends out his disciples to retrieve a donkey for him to ride on into Jerusalem for this roughly one or two mile stretch. So you have to think about this. Jesus has been coming around from Galilee all the way down, making his way through various towns and villages, over roughly a hundred miles walking with his disciples and various crowds. Why all of a sudden request a donkey? Why send for a donkey within a few miles of your destination? Uh, also, wouldn't he have stood out if he's riding on a donkey in the midst of people walking into the city? Jesus didn't request a donkey because he was tired or because he had trouble getting up the climb. And yes, he would stand out, which is part of the point. This was a deliberate act, just like choosing the Mount of Olives was a deliberate act. Having his donkeys, or having his disciples rather, gather a donkey for him to ride in on was a deliberate act. He was being deliberately dramatic. He was making a declaration to the crowds about who he is and what he had come to do. 
I said before that Jesus had been going about preaching and teaching the kingdom of God for the last few years, but he hadn't openly declared himself the king. He hadn't gone about telling everybody, I'm the king, in explicit language. The disciples recognized that Jesus was the king through various things that he did and he said, and he confirmed that he was the Messiah, but he warned them to keep this a secret. Uh, You see this throughout the Gospels, Jesus healing people, them calling him son of David, and he says, don't tell anybody. Don't, Don't warn anybody about who I am. He keeps it a secret. But this is now the appointed time where the messianic secret is now over. Now, on his last journey into Jerusalem, Jesus was making public his identity as the Messiah King. So you might ask, why would a donkey communicate that Jesus was a king? Well, throughout the Old Testament, donkeys actually have a history of links with Israel's kings. I'll give you a few examples here. In Genesis 49, Jacob prophesies concerning his 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the prophecy concerning Judah, which remember Judah is uh, the son through whom David would come uh, in the kingly line after David and ultimately uh, the line through whom Jesus would come. He says this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So you have this connection between uh, royalty in the line of Judah and uh, a choice vine and a donkey, a donkey's colt specifically. First Samuel 10, Saul, remember the story of Saul when he's anointed king, he's out looking for his father's lost donkeys. Uh, and the prophet Samuel finds him and anoints him as king over Israel. Second Samuel 16, which we just mentioned a moment ago, David going up onto the Mount of Olives. When he gets to the Mount of Olives, uh, one of Mephibosheth's servants gives him donkeys to ride on for him and his family. This is uh, after, again, he had fled from his son Absalom. In 1 Kings 1, Solomon is anointed king by Nathan the prophet and rides on David's mule, a half donkey, half horse animal, from Gihon into Jerusalem to take the throne. So you see these explicit references with donkeys and anointing and kingship, uh, taking the throne. Matthew also explicitly tells us that Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah 9, which we read this morning. The passage says this, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Jesus was declaring through all of these symbols that he is in fact God's anointed king who has come to Jerusalem finally to deliver his people. Jesus riding on the donkey is identifying himself as a Davidic king. He is like David's son Solomon, riding into Jerusalem, but he is also notably unlike him. Solomon had, we're told, 40,000 horses for his chariots. Jesus doesn't own any donkeys or saddles for that matter. He borrows one for his entry. He has his disciples go and have one lended to him. His crowds are dusty, poor pilgrims. Jesus himself is a dusty, poor pilgrim. 
His glory is concealed. It's humble. This already foreshadows that his triumph will not look like the triumph of other earthly kings. Matthew's translation of Zechariah uses the word gentle to describe Jesus. Earlier in Matthew, Jesus uses the same word to describe himself when he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This king is a gentle and humble king, ready to receive those who are burdened and heavy laden. Zechariah 9 describes a coming king who will speak peace to the nations, who will rule from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. In Zechariah, the Lord promises to deal with the wicked shepherds and to destroy the enemies of his people. He describes the day of the Lord when Yahweh himself will become the king, who is worshipped by Israel and worshipped by the nations and who reigns over all the earth and all the nations. So Jesus is not only identifying himself as the Davidic king, but he's identifying himself as Yahweh in the flesh, returning to Jerusalem to finally set up his kingdom. The timing of the Passover celebration is also not lost on the crowds who were no doubt full of expectation and hope that perhaps now Yahweh was finally acting again to save his people. So let's consider a moment the crowd's response uh, to these deliberate actions of Jesus. The crowd understood at least on some level what was being communicated. We're told most of the crowd, so most of this throng of people that are coming along with Jesus, responded by laying their cloaks down on the road. Many of whom, probably this was their only cloak, uh, their only outside garment. Uh, They were laying these down and were told some cut branches from the trees to spread them on the road. Why would somebody lay their only coat on the dirty, dusty road so that a man could ride a donkey over them? Back in 2 Kings 9, Jehu, one of Israel's kings, was anointed king over uh, the northern kingdom in Israel in defiance of the wicked house of Ahab, whom the Lord had rejected. And his followers spread their cloaks. They they spread their coats under Jehu's feet as soon as they heard the announcement that he was the new king. They were rolling out the red carpet, as it were, for their new king. And likewise, at Jesus' kingdom announcement on the Mount of Olives, here the crowds were professing their loyalty to this new Jehu. They were effectively laying themselves down before their king in humble allegiance. Could the crowds have understood that Jesus was announcing that he was the promised king from Zechariah uh, and he was making his way into Jerusalem, this city of David's throne, to establish his kingdom? Likewise, the palm branches were a symbol of celebration and loyalty to the king. About two centuries earlier, Simon the Maccabee drove Syrian forces out of Jerusalem. And we're told in 1 Maccabees that the Jews entered Jerusalem with praise and palm branches, with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments, and with hymns and songs, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. About 20 years later uh, from Simon, we learn about Judas Maccabees and his followers who recovered the temple 
from a Hellenistic king who had persecuted the Jews and desecrated the temple. They cleansed it and rededicated it, waving palm branches and singing. So no doubt these connections were uh, in the minds of the crowds, these connections between palm branches and songs of praise and the restoration of the kingdom, the overthrowing of foreign powers, the cleansing of the temple that Jesus is about to do. Uh, All of this would have been in the forefront of their minds. And the crowds tell us what's on their minds. In fact, they profess using the words of Psalm 118 that we sang this morning. They were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is a liturgical term, again, from Psalm 118, that that just means help us, save us now. Uh, And it's uh, saying to Yahweh. It's a a liturgical song saying to Yahweh. In Psalm 118, the cry is for Yahweh to bring his salvation from enemies who surround Israel at every side. And likewise, the phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, comes from Psalm 118. And in Luke and John, it's interesting, the phrasing that's used there is interchangeably with the king of Israel. So in Matthew, it's blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Luke and John, it's blessed is he who comes the king of Israel. So they're explicitly calling Jesus their new king. We know from other passages in the gospel that people were expecting the Messiah to be from the line of David, of course, as is clear from the Old Testament scriptures. Remember back in 2 Samuel 7, roughly a thousand years before Jesus' time, God made a covenant with King David, promising to establish his kingdom through David's heir. This son of David to come would be Yahweh's true king and would receive all of the nations as his inheritance. Throughout Matthew's gospel, the blind and those in need of healing have been crying out to Jesus for mercy, calling him son of David. The crowds were now shouting it out for all to hear that Jesus is the promised Davidic king who would restore the kingdom, which meant things were about to change for everybody. What did Jesus want them to save them from? Remember, God's people at this time were, of course, back in the promised land after having lived in exile, but they were under the rule of the Romans, a foreign nation. The bad guys were ruling and the wicked were winning. And the kingdom of Israel was still in shambles. It was still not quite like Daniel had prophesied. It must have appeared to them that now was the time when Jesus was going to come in and finally destroy all these oppressors and set up God's kingdom by force. We're told that the crowds were stirred up. They were going crazy. They were excited. There was a lot of energy in this crowd. Uh, The moment was building for Jesus to come in, establish his throne, overthrow the Romans, and restore the former glory of Israel. We know that Jesus rides on into Jerusalem on this donkey and brings temple services to a halt. He stops the buying and the selling of sacrificial animals. He rebukes the wicked shepherds. He heals the lame lame and the blind and welcomes them into the temple. There's a children's choir singing Hosanna again to the son of David. And the chief priests and the scribes can't stand that. And Jesus replies to them, have you not read Psalm 8? 
God has prepared his praise through the children. Once again, he's identifying himself with David and with Yahweh. He's not denying the title son of David, and he's claiming that the praise rightfully belongs to him. God has prepared it for him. But from here, we know that Jesus pronounces a judgment on the temple. He uh, predicts the destruction of the temple. But he doesn't set up God's kingdom by force. He doesn't go in and overthrow the Romans. The chief priests and the elders feel threatened by Jesus and conspire together for the right time to deliver him up to be killed at the hands of the Romans. Imagine after that event, after all the excitement, all of that building, imagine the confusion and the disappointment of the crowds. They didn't know how the story would work out. They they didn't have the benefit that we do. Uh, Everything appeared to be coming to this climax. Their new king was put to a shameful death like all the other radical revolutionaries. But all along, we know that this was Jesus' plan for establishing his kingdom. Uh, Surprisingly, he had told his disciples over and over the plan, and they didn't get it. He announced several times to them before coming here that this was the reason he had to go to Jerusalem in the first place. Jesus was going for the Passover, but not the Passover that they thought. Jesus said, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem to suffer and be killed and raised on the third day. He comes to give himself as the Passover lamb. Jesus' path to victory over the enemy was not through force or military power, but through being enthroned on a pagan cross. Through his cross, he deals decisively with our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. He pronounced the destruction of the temple, but through his death and resurrection, he's become the chief cornerstone of a new and living temple made up of living stones, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. One new man, as Paul calls it, made up of Jew and Gentile, of all the nations. Though the disciples and the crowds didn't understand, Jesus established his worldwide reign by humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as Paul says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The message of Palm Sunday is the declaration that Jesus is the promised Davidic king and the fulfillment of Yahweh's promise to become king himself and establish his worldwide kingdom by defeating our enemies. For the remaining time, let's consider a few brief points of application. Palm Sunday teaches us that Jesus answers our prayers for salvation in ways that we don't expect. Jesus' death and resurrection mean that he is truly the king and he comes to make all things new. And because he conquered our real enemies, Satan, sin, and death, he can save us, of course, from all of our other troubles. The crowds thought they knew the real problem and they wanted Jesus to fix it. They wanted him to come in and take charge, but they weren't expecting the way in which he would truly answer their cries. 
And this poses a question for us to reflect on. Do we really want Jesus in charge? We cry out, Hosanna, asking Jesus, save me from my troubles. Please take away this problem right now. And that's the typical prayer in the trenches, right? Things have gotten really bad and we get really good at prayer when things get really bad. We want God to come in and to help. Yes, please come and be king and take over. And then when Jesus comes and he takes over in his way, we say, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, what are you doing? I wasn't asking you to change that or to do it this way. We're like the little boy who runs up to his mommy with a scraped knee and he's got gravel and dirt all inside of his wound. He says, do we really got to clean it out? You know, can't you just put a Band-Aid on top? Uh, Is it really that bad? Can we just leave the gravel there, (laughs) please? Jesus doesn't want to leave you in your sin. He wants to deal with the wound. When Jesus is in charge, it's all or nothing. He either calls the shots on everything or he's not the king. Everything means Jesus calls the shots on your marriage, how you raise your children, how you spend your time, your money, how you do your job, what you do with your friends. All of our life must be put into submission to his lordship. And that's a process. That's a daily struggle. But it's the good fight that we fight. And Jesus is right there alongside fighting with us. Is there an area of your life that you refuse to let Jesus take control of? Where are you demanding your own little sovereign realm? Are there places where you are masking the real problem and not submitting it all to King Jesus. Remember that your king gladly gave himself for you in love to win you back from the darkness. And he cares for you too deeply to allow you to remain in your sin. He promises to complete the good work that he started within you. Palm Sunday also invites us to consider our allegiance to King Jesus. When we wave the palm branches and sing Hosanna, we are acknowledging the truth about who Jesus says he is. The true conquering king who comes to bring peace to the nations. We're joining in with the crowds to receive our coming king. Now there's a common preacher's trope uh, that contrasts the crowd's praise on Palm Sunday with the shouts of accusation on Good Friday. Uh, But there are clues within the text that may indicate the need to distinguish between those Galileans who are traveling with Jesus on Palm Sunday and the Judeans and leaders who show up for Jesus' trial. But in any case, even if these crowds are different crowds, we have to ask the question, where where were those who professed loyalty to their king at his entry in Jerusalem when Jesus was on trial? Where did all those people go who pledged their allegiance on Palm Sunday? Like the disciples, they abandon their king under the pressures of trial and temptation. It's easy to pledge commitment to the winning team when they are on top. It's much harder to stay committed when all appears to be lost. Will we sing our hymns of praise and remain loyal to the king when the pressures of trials, persecution, and temptation are upon us? And in our country, we may be heading to a time of more intense pressure and persecution from those who hate Jesus. Will we remain loyal when it gets hard? 
Palm Sunday also shows us that the path to victory includes suffering. The crowds didn't understand why their Messiah went to the cross. On this side of Christ's resurrection, we know that the cross was the only path for God to deal decisively with our sins. But Jesus also calls us to take up our crosses and to follow him to the death. His cross and his suffering are for sure unique and once and for all. But Jesus didn't suffer and die so that you wouldn't have to. He suffered and died so that you would be able to. He bore the cross so that we can take up our crosses and follow him. Our sufferings are caught up into Christ's sufferings so that we too will be raised to victory and a resurrection like his. Our path to victory includes laying our lives down for the sake of others. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Christ came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to announce his global kingship. He came to declare judgment on the wicked shepherds of Israel. He came to declare the end of an old world and the beginning of a new one. He took upon himself the sins of the world and laid down his life. His claims of kingship and global dominion were vindicated in his resurrection from the dead. He ascended into heaven and now sits and reigns at the right hand of the Father. He will come again. He will come again triumphantly and in glory to judge the living and the dead. Those who give their allegiance to Christ, those who kiss the Son, those who come to him while he is gentle and lowly of heart will receive forgiveness and welcome. Those who resist the Son will be crushed under his judgment. We have an advantage, I said before, this side of the cross and the resurrection. We know how the story plays out. The question is, will we believe the testimony concerning him and give ourselves to him fully? Will we cry out like the blind and the lame, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, and follow him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.